thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. It is always such an honor to be here presenting the Word of God, and today we are continuing through the book of Hebrews as we look at the idea of better, of better. Before we get into our text uh, this morning, I want to touch on something that I talked about briefly last week. Uh, I suggested that humans have a natural disposition for finding better because eternity has been written on our hearts as we read in Ecclesiastes. Being made in the image of God, we know that there is something better beyond what we can see. Understanding what is called the imago dei, the image of God that we are made in, helps us understand God's plan for his creature. We don't have time to be exhaustive on the imago dei this morning, uh, but in in short, I want to touch on some of what it implies. Uh, Because humans are made in the image of God, part of that means that we are endowed with intellect and with emotions and a will like our maker has. Because we are made in the image of God, we also possess creativity. We are in inventing, fabricating, synthesizing, music making, artwork creating people, right? We see that throughout our culture and throughout all cultures, really. Humans are both imaginative and we have eternity written upon our hearts. That's why I believe people are so great at coming up with these fantasy worlds. We can think of examples like C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia or J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series. There's movies of superheroes that take over the blockbuster uh, movies every single summer. People flock to these movies and these types of stories because they're an exploration of life beyond everyday realities that we live in. They push us to use our God-given imaginations. And in principle, imagination is a great thing. We must even realize that the Bible does not condemn a person reading or writing or watching a tale of fiction. Scripture even uses stories to illuminate truth quite often, but we must be weary of allowing imaginative fantasies to dictate objective reality, okay? The innate sense of better leads us to imagine, which is a great thing, it's a good thing, a fun thing, but we must not let the fantasies of fallen man supplant the realities of God's revealed truth. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. At the end of the day, everything we do, including the kinds of content we consume, should be pointing us back towards the goodness, the truthfulness, the pureness, the loveliness, the excellence revealed to us by God and explained in his word. Here's what I'm getting at with this. Everything in our lives, the things we do, 
the things we consume, even the things we dream about, the fantastical stories that we read or write are only beneficial to us when they flow from and complement the truth of God's word. Now, I'm sure at this point, you guys are like, Brad, we're in Hebrews. What are we doing here? I promise this is coming to a point. If you would stay with me, we must not think that any and all fiction and entertainment in and of themselves are the devil. That would be adding to the scriptures as the Pharisees did uh, with extra commandments of men. At the same time, we must use discernment, dwell on things that are congruent with God's word and guard ourselves from false teaching that seeks to influence our beliefs through the content that we consume. Too often, we allow secular, imaginative, or extra-biblical ideology to influence what we think about God and the way he works and the truth that he has revealed to us. Now, this happens in all facets of theology where we let outside things dictate what we believe, what God has revealed to be true to us. But in Hebrews chapter 1 today, our attention is brought towards angels. You see, we have a problem in common with the original intended recipients of this letter. We misunderstand angels. Angels can be seen all throughout our pop culture, but it is imperative that we gain our understanding of the heavenly hosts from scripture and not from our yearly viewing of It's a Wonderful Life. We need to understand When our loved ones pass, they do not gain wings and become angels. Angels aren't running around fixing baseball games to promote a godless faith in humanity. They aren't precious moments figurines. But they are absolutely real. They are truly fascinating creatures. It's no wonder that there's confusion on the topic. One theologian said that the topic of angels is the most remarkable and difficult of all for us to understand. This causes some pastors and churches and people to skip over the discussion of the topic. However, when the church neglects to speak on something, the lost world will. And they will fill in the gaps with faulty premises. That's part of the reason why there's so much confusion on the topic to begin with. I'm just going to very quickly give you a brief survey of what scripture shows us about angels. We're not told exactly when God created the angels, but we are told that they were there when God created the world. You can find that in Job 38 verses 4 through 7. Uh, We'll see in our text today that they are spiritual beings, but we also know they can appear in human form as seen in Hebrews 13.2. They are intelligent creatures with emotions. You can see that in Luke 15.10. They do not marry one another in heaven as seen in Matthew 22.28-30. The number of angels is beyond what we could even comprehend. It could be in the trillions in what we see from like verses like Daniel 7. Verse 10, uh, the unfallen angels reside in heaven. We see that in Mark 13, 32. And we also see that a great number of angels fell with Lucifer, Satan, and they stand in rebellion to God. And you can find that in Isaiah 14, 12 and chapters like Revelation 12. The Bible reveals many uh, 
eye-opening, even wondrous truths about angels. I can see where they get inspirations for some of these myths and stories about these creatures. But while these heavenly hosts undoubtedly amaze us, we should also remember one central truth about angels. They are not God. And that is what the Spirit is getting at in our text this morning in Hebrews. You see, the Hebrew people often elevated angels above where they should be. If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. The theme of this series is better, better beyond all measure. Christ is better than any comparison. He is better than anyone could ever hope to imagine. By the time this letter was written in the first century AD, many of the Jewish people had begun to lift up the position of angels uh, to a level that was almost polytheistic. Instead of seeing the glory of God uh, in, uh, when he said, let us make God in our image, instead of realizing the Trinitarian nature of God, they believed that that us way back there in Genesis was talking about God and the angels, some sects of the Hebrew uh, uh, nation did. And so uh, uh, many Hebrews were deceived into believing that us was God and the angels. They believed that there was a group of 200 angels that controlled the movement of the stars. And then there was a very special calendar angel who oversaw days turning into the next day in a continuation of day after day. Some other angels would be over the seas and over the land and over the water and all of those things. It was a, akin to the pantheon of Greek gods that we've heard about in school. And there would be an entity over each aspect of life. So the Holy Spirit here, speaking through whoever wrote Hebrews, uses the truth of Jesus and God's word to set the record straight on the real position of angels. Hear me out here for a second. The angels are an amazing part of God's creation. We can see the scene where uh, they appear to the shepherds and th that's a wild, crazy scene to think about. But when we stare at the beauty of a sunset, we don't then worship the sunset, but the creator from whom the sunset was given. In the same way, we can look at the, uh, what, the teachings that we are given on angels and we can be filled with wonder and with awe, but not in worship of them, but rather in worship of the one who created them. Jesus is better than the angels. Today, we're going to be given six reasons why Jesus is better than the angels. We're going to back up a little bit to the second half of verse three uh, and, and start there this morning. Uh, if you would, let's turn there now. The second part of verse three says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty uh, on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The first reason that Jesus is better than the angels is what he has done and what he has done alone. Number one, who did it? Last week, we spent some time walking through the excellencies of Jesus. These are reasons for why Jesus is so worthy of our honor and of our praise. 
We saw Jesus is the heir. He is the hand of creation, the radiance, the perfect minister over the entire universe. The second part of verse three here draws our attention to the mighty work that he has accomplished. In just five quick words, the Spirit has communicated the most impactful action ever taken in this world. It says, after making purification for sins. After making purification for sins. This is a big deal. This is the deal. Jesus Christ has made purification for sins. Now, this gives us two really big truths that we need to understand. Number one, sin needs to be purified. Number two, Jesus provides the purification. In just those five simple words, we get such an awesome truth laid out for us so simply, but we must not look past it. Sin has plagued humanity ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Man has been dealing with sin through our broken relationships with one another, through our continued trek down the road of depravity. When we're really honest with ourselves, we know that we so often fall short of perfection. We so often hurt other people. We put our desires ahead of everything else, no matter the cost. And let me tell you, our sin has a cost. Our sin has severed our relationship with the perfect, holy God, all righteous God. A price had to be paid to have that sin purified. And that price was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ made purification for sins. When Christ died on the cross, He wasn't just modeling what it looks like to have sacrificial love for friends and family. When Christ died on the cross, he was quite literally taking the wrath of God owed for the sins of all those who would believe in him upon himself. He then, as you see in verses three and four, sat down at the right hand of the father. His sitting represents a few wonderful things. It's a sign of honor for the greatness of what he has accomplished. It shows authority. He truly is the ruler, the heir. It shows his work is done. It is finished, he proclaimed on the cross. He can now sit. And lastly, he sits there interceding for all those who believe in him. He is vouching for, showing his blood has paid the debt for their sin when they stand in judgment. Because of what he has done, because of who did it, Christ is so much superior than the angels. No angel did that. It was the incarnate Savior. Now, if you're following through, a quick reading of verse 4 may suggest that Jesus was not better than the angel in his eternal, in his eternal state prior to the incarnation. But that's not what being, is being taught there. It says, during the incarnation, when Jesus, the son of God, stepped into our world, he was lower than the angels. But through his faithful life and sacrifice and resurrection, he has made purification for the sin. And he's been exalted. That is being exalted once more. No angel has done what Christ has done. His name is higher than theirs. Go with me to verse five. 
For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or I will be a father, or to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Number two, who is the son? Here, we see the divine Trinitarian relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It's completely different and completely better than God and the angels. Jesus is the Son of God. The angels are God's called servants. This is a distinction that cannot be overlooked. We'll look at more of the role of the angels a little bit as we walk through the rest of the text. But it is much better to be a son than a servant. The Hebrews of that day understood this claim to be meaning that Jesus is co-equal with God. Look at John 5, 18. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, talking about Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Understanding that Jesus is the son of God is understanding Jesus is God. This is a position beyond what the angels could ever hope to be. Those who reject the divinity of Jesus are in direct opposition to Jesus's own revealed truth in scripture. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. He is better than the angels in his name and who he is. Look then at verse six of Hebrews chapter one. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The third reason for Jesus's superiority to the angels is who worships whom? Who worships whom? In America, we have a problem with hero worship. We fawn over celebrities like the world revolves around them. There's entire television networks that are developed to give the inside scoop and the behind the scenes of the, the juicy celebrity goss, as the kids say. I do not believe that it's, in, it's wrong to enjoy the work of others, but there are lines that can be crossed when we really begin to start worshiping celebrities, but it's ingrained into our culture. We have a TV show literally called American Idol, Okay in which the winner is to be crowned the next singing sensation, to be idolized by the rest of the country. But the main point of what we're talking about this morning is not to rebuke celebrity culture, although I will suggest to you to think about how you are putting people on pedestals uh, and celebrities in particular, but we'll come back to that. (laughs) I bring up celebrity culture because it's something that we understand and often get caught up in. From that point of understanding, allow me to describe a scene. My grandmother loved going to sing karaoke at Hardy's on Friday nights. Every now and then, I would go and I would join my grandmother at karaoke at the Hardy's. And when I would go, my karaoke song to do is It's a Great Day to Be Alive by Travis Tritt. I love that song. And just bear with me here. Could you imagine if one Friday night, Mr. Tritt just happened to be walking in to the Hardys on Winchester Road in Lexington, Kentucky. And just as he is walking in the door to get him a thick burger, he hears me in the back singing, it's a great day to be alive. 
He walks in the door, he hears it, and then he turns and he sees it. I'm singing it. And would you imagine if Travis Tritt would then run up to the front of the little stage area where they're at and just started bawling praise? Woo! Y'all laugh because you know that ain't going to happen. Of course not. <laughs> Someone said amen, and we're going to have a talk after the sermon. <laughs> if that were to happen, he might smile. He might nod his head. He might say, good job, buddy. Or he might say, whoa. <laughs> but Travis Tritt is the one who has garnered fans in his career. When it comes to Jesus and the angels, Jesus is the superstar. He is the one who receives the praise. Getting that flipped around would be utterly ridiculous. And unlike Travis Tritt, Jesus Christ is absolutely worthy of all glory, honor, praise, and worship. He gets it from the angels. He is God. And Psalm 66 says that all earth worships him. All God's angels bow to the Son. If you want some direct application as we're walking through this today, do what the angels did. Worship him. Understand Jesus is greater. Understand he is worthy of being the ultimate object of your affections and your attentions. Sing praise unto his name. Worship him. Who worships whom? The angels worship Jesus. He is better. Let's keep moving. Look at verses 7 through 9. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a, a, a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Number four, whose nature is higher. In verse seven, we're given two truths about the angels. First, we see they are, were a created being. They are reliant upon something greater and bigger than themselves, something better for their existence and for their abilities. And secondly, we see that they are his. It says his angels wins, his ministers. The angels belong to God. They are dependent beings under the possession of God. But contrast that with what it says in verse 8. Verse 8 may be the most important verse in all of the study of what's called Christology. That is the study and understanding of who Christ is. Verse 8 may be the most important. Verse 8 proves to us why we must not think that Jesus is just a mere man. In verse 8, God the Father says of God the Son, your throne, O God. We have a direct confirmation of shared divinity between the Father and the Son. And if we want to get Trinitarian right here, remember who we're referring to as the author of this book? The Holy Spirit. Jesus is proclaimed to be God on the throne. Jesus is the one on the throne. He is the eternal king. He is perfectly just in his rulings. We see that he loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. Christ has been anointed beyond his companions. 
Don't take that to mean that the angels are equal to him as we would think of our companions. But it's here used to show that Jesus is better than these creatures whom God uses as his messengers. We call this the better messenger is the name of the title of the sermon here. Christ was a messenger as well, but in a much greater way than the angels. He is divine to his core. God, the son, he is the anointed one translated the Christ. When you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus is the anointed one who would save God's people, bring revelation that is far beyond anything the angels could have ever hoped to be. Let's see more of his superiority, if you would, in verses 10 through 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The fifth reason for Jesus' superiority, who is eternal? Who is eternal? The next reason we're given for Jesus' superiority is his eternality. Also along those lines, we are told Jesus is immutable. He is the immutability of Jesus, the unchangingness of Jesus. We've already discussed Recently, that the eternal Jesus was the hand of creation. We talked about that last week. That's mentioned there in verse 10 once more. But the overarching theme of these verses right here are the eternal existence of Jesus. We see he was there at the beginning. He created wonderful things. And all of those things will wear out like a garment. I'm telling you, I get this metaphor. I hate buying new clothes. Right. Some of y'all know I'm trying to lose a little weight. It's because I don't want to buy anything. Right. And it wears out eventually, especially if you don't lose weight and then you stretch it all out. But everything in this world is going to pass away. It's interesting that the spirit mentions that even the heavens will pass away. We've seen it's the dwelling place of the angels. We see that Jesus not only created such a place, but that he too will outlast it. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. When this earth has served its purposes for God's will, he will bring his divine judgment. The creation will be changed, but not the creator. We're told in verse 12, Jesus God will stay the same. His years will have no end. One commenter said that men come and go. Worlds come and go. Stars come and go. Angels were subject to decay as their fall proves. But Christ never changes, is never the subject of change, never the subject of alteration. He's eternally the same. He is therefore superior to the angels. Let's look at the last description of Jesus's superiority to the angels in verses 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not ministering, or are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? 
the last superiority we will look at is who is the conqueror? The Spirit uses rhetorical language here to show that the angels are not the ones who will be the conqueror. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstep, a footstool for your feet is written there in the verse. The answer to that question is very simply none. That was not said to any of the angels. That's not the role that the angels have. That is the role of Jesus Christ. The angels do serve a purpose. They're sent out on behalf of God to serve, to minister as we see And here our attention is drawn to the fact that the angels are to serve those of us who inherit salvation. All those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The angels are used by God to accomplish his will in saving the only beings made in his image. How exactly they go about this service, we are not told. I don't think it's through fixing baseball games. Because it's not told means we don't need to be told. The angels are creatures who serve God's will in the ways that he requires them to serve. That's really all we need to know. But as we're concluding this morning, you might think, Brad, this is a lot of cool information. But I've never really even thought about angels that much. I'm definitely not tempted to worship them. I never thought they were better than Jesus. Why does all of this matter to me? Well, all of this should be drawing our attention to three things for us this morning. Number one, you have to understand Christ is fully God. Many people will try to tell you Jesus was a good teacher. He was a moral example. He was a role model. But the testimony of scripture leaves no room for ambiguity on this matter. Jesus Christ is God. We have to reject false teaching. He is fully God, fully man. You want a fancy word that's a hypostatic union? He's fully God, fully man. He is worthy of our adoration. And we got to stand against others detracting from his divine nature. We got to stand for truth. And the truth is Jesus Christ is God. Number two, we should realize Everywhere we look, everything we do, everything we read, everything we watch, everything we are a part of is trying to teach us something. In this fallen world we live in, what we are taught is very often lies and distractions away from God's truth. Church, do not let the world shape your theology. Let your theology shape the way you view the world. This means that our ideas of angels shouldn't be drawn from movies, but from Scripture, from the revealed truth in Scripture. We shouldn't be relying on Disney movies. In fact, I wouldn't trust Disney for just about anything in our modern time right now. But for our theology to shape our worldview, we got to be in the Word. We got to know what the Word says. We have to think about things Theologically, please understand theology, thinking about the things that are above is not just reserved for pastors and seminary students. What you believe shapes everything about you. I was recently listening 
to the radio and I heard someone say that your beliefs shouldn't impact the way that you work on a job, especially uh, in a government job or like as a judge. And my thought was, if what you believe doesn't shape the way that you make decisions, the way that you process judgments and right and wrong, then what do you believe? What is your faith really in if it doesn't shape the way that you see the world? Jesus saved us on that cross to make us into new creatures whose eyes are set on the heavenly things. How can that not permeate through everything that we do? Start to process this world theologically. Finally, seeing the supremacy of Christ should allow us to see just how better beyond all measure Jesus Christ is. How much better beyond all measure he is from all things, including us. Jesus is better than me. Our response to that truth should be humbled submission and joyful praise. The eternal son of God died on the cross to pay the debt of sin for all those who would ever believe in him. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a grace it is that that mighty, eternal, powerful Jesus that we read about today would come to seek and save lost souls like us. There is nothing better in this world than understanding that Christ is the best. And the best paid the debt of my sin. I know Christ is still saving people today. People are still being convicted of their sin, their need of a savior. I know that the spirit is still drawing people to repentance. Jesus says to profess him publicly. Would you do that today? If you've publicly professed him through the waters of baptism a long time ago, would you start publicly professing him in your daily life? If you've never made a public profession, would you do so by coming forward? During this hymn of response to say, I believe Jesus is the eternal son of God and that God died for me. Christ is worthy of our praise. Christ is worthy of our profession. May we be unashamed of the gospel today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to dive into your word. Lord, I pray that your word is convicting us, that the spirit is drawing us closer unto you. Lord, that If there's anyone who has never publicly professed you as Savior and Lord, that you would be drawing them to do so today and that those who know you, Lord, would not act like they don't. Lord, that we would proclaim your name. That we would cry out, Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Savior. Lord, draw us unto you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, 
and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.